on a very special consensus. You're going to need to get consent, which is a noise she makes, not a feeling you feel. Consent is the gold standard. Everyone knows what's going on, and everyone said yes. Hello, exactly. Open and honest communication. Mutual acceptance. Yeah, love is blind, lust is Helen Keller. Consent is... I mean, like, you'd have to ask me, like, when I'm not drunk. Hello, exactly. Consent is honesty. What people agree to do. Drive safe, don't rape. Hello, exactly. Never optional. Sexy and required. Hello, exactly. Gentlemen, I think we can all agree that no means no every single time. But what about, uh-huh, even then for sure. Hello and welcome to another episode of Consentences, where we'll be talking alternative lifestyles through individuals' experiences, navigating desire, danger, and the importance of consent. I'm Snow, and I am once again joined by the lovely Ms. Marble. Hey. And we are so excited today to have with us Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, uh, Eli, who is a PhD with a focus on uh, polyamory. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Absolutely. We are so glad to have you here. So uh, we got the opportunity to go to a lecture series at, uh, put on by the Sexual Health Alliance here in Austin. And Eli was one of the, um, one of the guest le- lecturers who came in to speak. It was an absolutely fantastic presentation. And we are so thankful that you're on here to be able to share with us a, I mean, everything that you do and everything that you know uh, through your experiences and the books that you've written. And yeah, I'm going to stop talking now. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And that's so sweet of you to say it was a fantastic presentation. I appreciate that. Thank you. I think anytime. I work hard on those. So it's nice to hear. And very evident in your, in how you present. I I really think that anytime that we can bring um, arts and sciences and academia into looking at lifestyle choices and sexuality is brilliant. And there's no reason that those things should operate in separate vacuums. So it's cool to be Agreed. able to experience an academic perspective on something that's really just a lot of fun for a lot of people. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so uh, before we really kind of get into uh, talking about everything we're going to today. Why don't you go a little bit into kind of what your credentials are and background is, just to give everyone kind of a frame of reference for uh, what you're so knowledgeable about. I have a PhD in sociology from the University of Colorado in Boulder, which was a fun place to study. I would imagine. Um, Yeah. I am certified as a sexualities educator by the, by ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Um, I have been certified as a court-appointed special advocate or a CASA, which is someone who um, advocates on behalf of children in foster care, working in the court system as an advocate for kids. And I've been studying polyamory since 1996. The Longitudinal Polyamorous Family Study has followed polyamorous families with children over time to see how it impacts their kids. And I've been studying BDSM since 2005. 
the talk that you gave was specific to uh, <laughs> unicorns within uh, threesomes, but I found it fascinating yeah. as that kind of the talk expanded and you got more into that polyamory longitudinal study. It was just absolutely fascinating that that's something that really hasn't been studied all that much. So for you to be someone who has a lot of that research and knows a lot of these people, what was actually one of the main reasons that I know I was excited about having you on today. Yeah. Well, thanks. You know, it hasn't been studied that much because it has been the kiss of death academically. <laughs> Unfortunately, people watched what it did to my career, how it tanked me in academia. And it was instructive. It has scared other scholars who don't have tenure yet off from studying it. Once you get tenure, you can really study whatever you want. They might still harass you, but they can't get rid of you like they got rid of me. So not that no one studies polyamory, but this kind of longitudinal, in-depth time commitment kind of research I'm doing is not good for your career when it's about polyamory. Sure. And that's why, I mean, that's what makes it so incredibly important is that the uh, lack of information that we have certainly does not prohibit the assumptions that are made about what the impact is on a family system. Yep. Very true. Yeah. And I, I do find that kind of interesting that, and that would be something that, you know, for I'm sure a number of reasons why that wouldn't be something that ac academics are willing to kind of put themselves out there to study. Um, so that uh, ivory tower is real cushy while you're in it. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's not really. I mean, the pay is terrible. The hours are long. The only good thing about it is that it's incredibly engaging intellectually. It's so much fun to think about such big things, but in terms of other things people get from work, sure. it's not cushy. <laughs> Touche. I, I will stand corrected on that one. So, let's, I mean, let's start from just a very high level. Why don't we go into exactly four, I mean, and I can only imagine how many different conceptions people may have of the term just itself. Can you go into a little bit about polyamory as just a concept? What is it, basically? Yep, just a, yeah. Polyamory is a form of consensual non-monogamy that focuses on emotional intimacy over longer terms with multiple partners. So in a way, it's kind of like swinging in that it allows people sexual variety while they're inside a relationship, but it's also different from swinging, which mainstream swinging has an emphasis on sexual novelty, but not establishing emotional relationships, mm -hmm. whereas polyamory is all about the emotional relationships. Polyamory is also not necessarily heterosexual. There's lots of people who are bisexual and pansexual and uh, mostly those two <laughs> in polyamory, whereas the majority of swing environments, especially in the United States, are virulently heterosexual, like super down on male same-sex contact, although open to female same-sex contact, especially if it's entertaining for men who are in their refractory period. Yeah, and a refractory period is what you get after you've had one orgasm before you can get another erection. That's refractory Perfect. period. <laughs> what a great way of talking about that. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, and actually to that point, I mean, we don't 
have to really go into swinging, but we could attest to that that was very prominent when uh, we visited uh, Hedonism 2 in Jamaica. And it was right. And there are other swing clubs that we've been to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just there's no hard rule yeah. against men playing together, yeah, but there's a culture that's not conducive to that necessarily. Yeah. Supporting True. Us. And some places do have hard rules sure. yeah. against it. Sure. I've been in swing clubs that have it posted on the wall. Men cannot touch each other. Wow. Powerful. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, every, <laughs> I mean, that's almost yeah. That's so, because so, yeah. men aren't isolated enough. Men well, need right, to be exactly. more isolated. That's well, if good. They start, for them. If they start right, talking they, to well, each other, to, they might have feelings. Right. We need Oof. to. I know. Yeah, we need to protect our masculinity, and there's no way that can happen. You know, if you know you're engaging with another man, that's right. Absurd. Oh, that's so Unless you're gay and hyper masculine. Right. And if you're doing that, and then you, have you your can club, you mask be out. <laughs> Right, good point, good point. And gay men often don't go to swing settings because it's really unfriendly to them. I I can believe it. So uh, when people talk about the word open or an open relationship, can we kind of contextualize what we're talking about in terms of consensual non-monogamy, swing, open, poly? Um, Open is kind of a larger broad category, almost an umbrella category that covers all of those other forms of consensual non-monogamy. It doesn't, if someone tells you they're in an open relationship, it doesn't give you a ton of information about like what kind of relationship or how they structure it. Whereas swinging and polyamory give you more information about, oh, that's what, you know, the swingers have all sorts of fun, exciting sex with all sorts of different kinds of people in a more kind of institutionalized framework, meaning they go somewhere to do it pretty frequently, like a club or a resort Mm -hmm. or a hotel convention, things like that. Whereas polyamory is much more kind of embedded in regular life. Like polyamorous folks probably also fold laundry and do dishes with their partners in a way that swingers will only Probably do that happening. with their primary partner. Yeah. And actually that was something that, that I know you talked about uh, during your lecture was that in polyamorous relationships, you know, uh, depending on what the dynamics are of the partners, there could be uh, a, a relationship where there's, it's nothing sexual at all, and it is completely emotional connection. Uh, and yes. So. In fact, those are super important for polyamory. So important, I made up a word for those, like the poly folks make up words all the time. I was so, like, oh, that's a good idea. Like so I made up the word, yes, like compersion or things like that. Yeah. So I made up, the, I didn't make up compersion, but I did make up polyaffective, which is those emotional, non-sexual relationships, emotionally intimate, that are actually turn out in my long-term research on the families. It's polyaffective relationships that are the glue that hold the family together long-term. If those are in good shape, the family is bulletproof. If those are rocky, the lightest little thing is going to push that family off the edge. Sure. And... Uh, that is such a cool word. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and Thanks. also, uh, also um, can you speak a little bit to define what compersion is? Because it's something that is clearly very important yeah. to all of this. 
Yes. Compersion is this super fun emotion of being really happy for your partner when they are connecting with someone else. So it's kind of like the joy you feel when you hear from your beloved sister that she got a promotion at work mm-hmm. or something. It doesn't really affect you, but you're happy for someone else. And the opposite Some polyamorous. Yes, exactly. Call it the opposite of jealousy. Right. It's finding joy in your partner's joy. Yes, exactly. I certainly have had plenty of experience working towards conversion with Snow's many hobbies. Um, Fun. Yeah. Because for a while there, I was like, what do you mean there's no time for me while you're doing woodworking? I'll have a compersive relationship to woodworking because it brings you so much joy. (laughs) Nice. Rather than being jealous of the time he spends on woodworking. Right. Which is work. I mean, that is that is a a task to do. And and a new thing comes in, takes up a lot of person, somebody's time. Like it's it's not nothing. It doesn't need to be that I'm jealous of another person he's spending time with. It's really easy to just say, hey, how are we factoring in time management? And I need some of that time, too. That's, in fact, a huge issue for many polyamorous relationships is time management. Oh, for sure, How do you give give relationships enough attention when you've really only got 24 hours in a day? You've got to work. You've got to sleep. You've got to go to school or do what, you know, like mow the lawn. Life has all sorts of stuff to do. So then how do you actually work in time for three partners, four partners to feel like they get enough attention. It's a challenge. Yeah. That in that for like the physical time together and then debriefing and emotional attention. And it's funny. We have right. a friend um, who just talks all of that up and calls it scheduling. He says, yeah. Polly is not hard. You it's just, just scheduling. And you'll get it. And I'm like, right. it's a lot what? of scheduling. If we're going to call it all scheduling. <laughs> It is a lot of scheduling, absolutely. And while that is accurate, very clearly, it is not just about that, but it's uh, being able to be judicious with your time. I think that's also, that's one of the big reasons that, I mean, in conversations that I've had with people that are uh, monogamous, where they can't understand poly relationships or just the concept of it, because they're like, how can you possibly have enough time for like more than one person? It's just fascinating to me that, they can't wrap their brain around. It's just like, well, imagine there's something that you just love doing. You make time for that thing. And if, you know, you are open to the concept that you may love or want to be intimate with more than one person, you're going to make time for them. (laughs) And one of the good things about polyamory is because everybody knows about each other, hopefully everybody likes each other. Partners can hang out together. You don't have to necessarily choose between them. I mean, clearly, sometimes one-on-one time is really people really want that with their beloved. Absolutely. Whether, yeah, whether that's with a nesting partner or primary or if it's just like kind of NRE, that new relationship energy of seeing someone and kind of being able to have that unique time. But Absolutely. I mean, we have several friends that have been in or are in uh, polycules uh, where, uh, you know, the partners, one couple male and female is dating uh, one of a couple of another pair. I mean, the whole idea of it is like, I mean, visually it's hilarious. Like if you put it up on like a whiteboard in the way that like people connect, the polycule meaning just that like they are all kind of interloping between each other in various ways and they're actually all about to move in together 
So I mean, what fun? Yeah. So I mean, they're getting to a place of cohabitation with each other's partners because I said nesting are primary and uh, metamors. Would you be able to talk about the kind of those different roles they play? Metamors are your partner's partner. So, for instance, if my wife got a girlfriend and um, the girlfriend and I were not together, we would be metamors, both partnered to my wife, but not partnered to each other romantically or sexually. But that's where the polyaffectivity comes in, the polyaffective relationships. Whereas if the metamors really like each other. Yeah, I can only um, I'd imagine that for sure when that's happening, there is a lot more connection across the board. Yes, and exactly. I can, but I can perceive, I can imagine that that can be pretty destructive as well. If that's something that like you have, if your primary and a uh, metamor do not like each other, that's probably not going to go well. <laughs> exactly, especially over the long haul. And in fact, the only way I've ever seen that work over time is if the metamor lives far away oh, right. yeah. like I was gonna you say. can maintain a long distance relationship that way but if that metamor and that partner are interacting four or five times a week and they hate each other that's got a very short shelf life yeah something's gonna break there exactly <laughs> how about can i tell you about how the kids are doing yes or do you want to hear about consent both yeah i bet you can tie them together which one Okay. (laughs) We'll start with the kids and then we'll see how that ties in with consent. How about that? Perfect. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the overall, uh, in your study with the longitudinal study, based on all of your research, how is this affecting the the kids of these families? That's a great question. Um, These kids specifically in my research are in amazing shape. Now they're um, getting older, they're graduating from college, some of them are getting married. And even though they don't all necessarily say that a polyamorous family was the best thing that ever happened to them, sometimes they're like, yeah, you know, some parts of that sucked. Yeah. (laughs) They do all say, however, that they learned some incredibly valuable skills growing up in a polyamorous family in terms of how to relate to other people, how to talk through conflict instead of screaming and fighting, how to establish emotional intimacy, how to find people when they move away from home and they need to create their own support network in the adult world. They have the skills to do that. And that they feel is one of the most important things they learned from a polyamorous family. Yeah, and I, w- I would have to think that has, is a major point of it because, and certainly, and we, we consider, I mean, we jokingly call ourselves monogamish with opportunistic tendencies. Um, uh, that's great. But, but we're, but we're, <laughs> that's not a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and obviously, I'm, but we are certainly very open to the concept of, of poly, so we would consider ourselves that despite neither of us having other partners right now. The crux of all of it uh, relies on communication around everything that's happening, living a very transparent, communicative life, and setting that as an example for children. If that's if there's a lifestyle you have, it's not like things can be hidden from your partners. 
Um, so right. by living in that way, I, I mean, that would stand to reason that those kids are probably getting a lot more exposure to a different level level of integrity if their parents are polyamorous. Certainly a different level of communication sure. and the idea that within the family, there are no secrets. Some families whose parents are cheating on each other, right. if the child notices that or figures it out, it can be terribly corrosive for that poor child to carry that secret. But in a polyamorous family, because you can talk about it, not only mom has a girlfriend, but also whatever else comes up. You know, the polyamorous families are not secretive. They're not, you know, the kids can ask whatever questions they want. And that gives the kids this feeling of kind of safety and ability to question not only their parents, but the world at large. And the kids talk about that too as a major advantage for them being able to think for themselves and question established wisdom and decide if that's what they want to do or not and some of them decide yes i want to be married and monogamous and others are like no i want to be in an open relationship and some of them are like i'm 14 i don't know what kind of relationship i want <laughs> smart yeah um that actually kind of harkens my other the question that I was thinking of earlier, which is in my personal experience, it seems to me that um, the choice, I don't want to call it a choice, the decision to live a polyamorous lifestyle or a monogamous lifestyle feels almost as biologically, genetically hardwired for people as like sexual orientation. It's not that I, would I choose to be poly, but that, like, I've tried monogamy and it doesn't work so well for me. <laughs> yeah. I would absolutely agree with that, that there is a certain kind of person who is polyamorous by orientation, and often they've tried and tried to be monogamous, and it just doesn't work for them. So they're like, nope, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it and cheat. Instead, I'm going to say, do not expect monogamy right. from me. And the other way also, and people the, who have tried poly and are not wired that way. Yeah. Exactly. Or won't even try poly. In fact, that's what my... um relationship coaching practice is mostly clients facing the non-monogamy mismatch mm -hmm. where one of them is polyamorous and the other is monogamous and that can be very difficult yeah and to work through i can imagine it's i mean when i think about you know the relationships that uh, and i had prior to uh being with marvel and recognizing that that was kind of a a piece of it where uh like i knew that seeing multiple people was something that i would want to do but uh there was a lot of fear of if i tell my partner that that that's where my head's at and that's what i want that i'm gonna also lose that partner so then it becomes right. that fear and then it, that i mean inevitably would lead to you know cheating or uh or just problems within the relationship you know, getting to a point of saying, it's like, no, this is how I think. And this is the way that I want to just be being honest with myself around that made it a lot easier to then find communities of people who also felt that way. And then being able to openly express that and not have it be something that was taboo or I wasn't going to be dating anybody at that time who was unaware of 
kind of where I was at because it requires, again, so much transparency, so much communication, and so much honesty Right. Uh, yeah. that it was wonderful to no, not have to live in a place of like, no, cheating doesn't happen because I'm going to tell you that I'm going to go sleep with this person. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. In your experience, um, I know some people go into polyamory having the conversation that, yes, we're going to see other people, we want to try this out, but then also holding something like of a don't ask, don't tell policy around it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do these things, and you know I'm doing these things, but we're not going to talk about who I'm with or who my partners are, et cetera. I'm wondering what your experience and research shows around that. Um, in my experience, a lot of those folks don't actually stick with the polyamorous community. Most folks in the polyamorous community are not only aware of what their partner is doing, but actively hanging out with their other partners. Um, don't ask, don't tell can absolutely work well for some people, but that tends to be more of a monogamish Mm-hmm. relationship or maybe closer akin to swinging like somebody's going to go out and have some fun and whatever is that can especially work well for people who are separated by distance let's say somebody travels a lot for work or something mm-hmm. if they can you know meet somebody in the hotel bar and have some fun with them and you know not have to feel guilty about it when they get home right that can work incredibly well, especially if they are careful to negotiate safer sex agreements mm-hmm. with the partner who's at home. When that falls apart is if somebody is sloppy about condom use and gets an STI, yeah. then there can be hell to pay. <laughs> Even though, you know, so many people have STIs. Once you get an STI, it's not like your life is over. So, so many people have sexually transmitted infections and it doesn't rule their lives. It's really not that big of a deal for most people. It's mostly the stigma and fear around sexually transmitted infections that people get all upset about. But the actual having them turns out to be not a huge big deal. No. And I mean, that's uh, funny that you say that because we have a couple of uh, friends that are in the um, healthcare community and they are constantly working to destigmatize that. No, it's not good. Like nobody wants to have an STI, but at the same time it is, it's, it isn't something that should be like, okay, well there goes your social life. We actually, we often um, or not, Often, but when we go to certain parties, they'll do kind of an opening and exercises to get people comfortable with talking and uh, saying no. And one of the exercises that we've observed and participated in is working um, conversation about STIs or oh, right. risk or last um, time that right. we were checked into that negotiation process. So it's just it's as simple as no, I don't want my hair pulled, and yes, you should be aware of this going on in my body, and these are the measures I take to protect myself. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, and my goal is blocked. Right. And I, I just think that that's right. so cool that, and actually, and we've talked about that, there are multiple parties that, that do this, that, but that is a part of kind of just getting started is like, here's who I am. Here's, you know, what my goal is for tonight. If I have any STIs communicating that or saying, you know, then the last time that you were tested and just being really forthcoming about it. So everybody is working with the same deck of cards around any choices that are getting made during negotiations. Excellent. I'm really glad people are 
handling it that way. We don't live in a culture where no without qualification is easy. So it's all about right. how do we open up those conversations and, and figure out how we talk about it with ourselves and with others. I mean, it's about first being honest with myself about what do I want and what do I need to pay attention to to be able to get there and then opening that up to invite somebody else along that process. Yeah. You also, you mentioned BDSM and that you've been studying that for, for a while too. 15 years, 15 now, years yeah. now. What has been your experience of the parallels in terms of people who are polyamorous and uh, people who may be into BDSM or kink? But, That's a good question. That's in fact what got me interested in studying BDSM. Once I was studying polyamory, so many, so many of my respondents started telling me about being also involved in kink. And I was like, what is kink? What is BDSM? I've never heard of that. I'm a sheltered little white girl. Um, and they were like, oh, it's this, you know, they would explain it to me. And I was like, wow, I can't, you know, like, I don't, see where this came from kind of but then as i started studying it i realized that they're both outside of social conventions often involved in exploring a range of either emotional or physical interactions and sensations they both require negotiation to establish you know you can't kind of be on automatic pilot with that because there's no larger social script to fall back on so you have to talk about what you're going to do um i would say the overlap between polyamorists and kinksters is incredibly significant. Probably at least a third of polyamorists are also involved in BDSM. Yeah, I, would I mean, imagine, it's, it's a strong correlation. I would, yeah. I mean, I'd say if you were to uh, put those numbers against just the general population versus people who are polyamorous, that yeah, that that number's probably going to be higher with how many people in the poly community are into BDSM. <laughs> Absolutely, and the other. Um, overlap, I would say, kind of on the other side is sacred sexualities. So probably maybe a fifth to a quarter of the polyamorous world is involved in some kind of sacred sexuality, like Tantra mm -hmm. is really popular. And ironically, they don't, sometimes they're the same people, but far more often they are either interested in Tantra and sacred sex or yeah. BDSM and generally not both. I'm not saying there's not a person out there who is interested in both. They certainly exist. But for the kind of a general rule of thumb, they're that tends separate to be a solid split where you have the people who are more of the almost hedonist sensualists that are on that Tantra side versus the other end of the spectrum where it is, you know, a whole different type of sensation and pain play or whatever, you know, kink they may be doing at the other end of the spectrum. I can see how there might not be a ton of overlap there. I mean, I'm sure it happens, right. but... I mean, it almost feels like they are different spiritualities in their own right. So, like, they're, right. they have some... Yeah. Like, how do you get your connection on? Yeah. And some people do it the same way, you know, both... Sure. But for the most part, I would say to be interested in BDSM, you not only have 
a range of sensations to enjoy, but also some kind of role play is very common in BDSM, usually involving dominance and submission. And for some folks, like that's what keeps me from being kinky. I just cannot believe the role play. I'm way too defiant to be a submissive and I'm way too lazy to be a dominant. (laughs) So you mean you'd be a bratty bottom and you'd be a boring top? Or I would just be like, leave me alone. I want to read my book. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm just not. The, and the whole role play, it just, I can't believe it. I don't buy it. That'd be great. You could be a femdom so, and it's like, and your superpower is withholding. Right. Yes. My superpower is saying, leave me alone. <laughs> go get me a glass of wine and my book. Good. Now <laughs> go clean my house and don't talk to me for three hours. Oh man. That's, there, I, are you satisfied? I hope so. Snow's been trying to work I, I that will, in for a long I will, time I'll now. I'll tell you what, like, okay. So, I mean, we're, we are definitely uh, not in MS, which is master slave. Uh, right. But uh, we have a hundred percent found women that do consider themselves very, very subby. Uh, and have been either in a uh, master-slave dynamic before or are just are all about just being submissive. As somebody who I'd consider myself a dom uh, and a top, but tapping into them when they're like, yeah, I really want to be able to like serve, and like especially if they're service-oriented, and finding them and getting our house cleaned, basically them feeling as though they are they're able to tap into their submissive while I also get a clean house. That's awesome. And still they ask too many questions. And still they talk too much. And then, (laughs) and then then you're like, just clean it and be quiet. Yeah, exactly. It's like, we have to, all right, we have to set better rules. That's right. But I mean, that's, that's Uh what it comes back to. And I, I think it also makes sense that there would be so much overlap from the poly community into other alternative sexualities because of the role of communication. Like yeah. once we're that open to talking and sharing and having transparency, then all of the other We get out of our own way. Well, right. But then all of the other oh, taboos that's a good way to put it. The taboos, the ways that we I've I've, you know, had to hide certain predilections or not want to talk about them because there's shame involved, that starts to dissipate also because the conversation's already opened up. Right. And the ability to say, I want this thing that maybe not everybody wants. And in fact, some people are totally freaked out by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, uh, that brings up an interesting point, too, and around how people or couples who are poly, how they will often have uh, certain partners that they see because they cross those boundaries of things where, like, say, their primary isn't into BDSM, but they like to, you know, play with sometimes they may have a partner who is in that community that that's kind of what they do when they spend their time right. together. Uh, yeah. Is that something that and you found as well within the, uh, the families that you studied when, in terms of how the partners would uh, have their additional partners? Yes. I would in fact put that in the larger category of getting a wider range of needs met right. in a polyamorous relationship. In fact, that's what many people point to as something they really like about polyamory is that ability to have, you know, so many different needs met by different people, but none of those people are doing something that makes them uncomfortable. Because to have kinky sex with someone who's not enjoying it is just gross. 
You know, like the feeling is not good. People don't like that. <laughs> or to have sex that you don't want to be having right. is no fun. But if you can find a partner who is enthusiastically like, yes, I want you to hit me with that cane, absolutely, Yeah, no, you I know, mean, yeah, then everybody's psyched for it. Yeah, so I mean, I to, in terms of my main kink, uh, I'm an impact top, and mm-hmm. uh, Marvel is not the heaviest of bottoms, but I can certainly be a very heavy top. And so she is nothing but compersive around if, you know, we find uh, a partner who is very submissive and is a very heavy bottom and she like really enjoys watching me play and also fuck that she does not want to be that person on the cross. <laughs> nope. Right. right. <laughs> like, we meet a stingy person. They want stingy stuff. I'm like, I know the person for you because that is not my role. Yeah. <laughs> Give me soft and freddy. Maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, for Absolutely. Sure. Energy exchange. That's where I'm at. The, right. the actual pain part, well, that's not really my deal. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Snow just handed me a, a notebook reminding me of a story from many moons ago. Um, somebody that I was seeing, not Snow, uh, had another partner. And I met this partner at one point. Uh, and then several months later, I was at a party and that partner was there. And she came up to me and was like, hey, how's it going? I don't know if you remember me. And I just kind of blurted out, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. You're that chick that does all the things I don't want to do, like anal. (laughs) (laughs) She did not take kindly. I think think it's still hilarious because it's accurate. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't mean to put her on blast in that moment at all. Sure. It was just like this really kind of funny, like, I am so grateful for who you are because I don't want to do any of that stuff. And he deserves to have it because he wants it. Right. Yeah. But I could also see how, I mean, if it were a kink party, that would be one thing. But in a mundane, like a vanilla party, to so, say, uh, oh, yeah, you did anal sex, yeah. you know, like that she would be like, oh, that's a little on the private side oh, to be sharing sure. with my Auntie Florence. <laughs> Auntie Florence was in bondage. Yeah. What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I do think, though, that that is one of the certainly one of the strongest cases to be made for polyamory or just, I mean, if you're wired that way is that you do have the opportunity to explore all those different, you know, modalities and types of play and sexuality while still at the same time, maintaining that really strong connection with your primary or your nesting partner. Yes. And then even explore different parts of yourself that come out with different partners. Mm-hmm. That's something that people have reported they really enjoy about polyamory is they get to be a different person Yeah, I can, with their different partners. Yeah, I can imagine in like the BDSM community, there may be someone who would consider themselves a, a dom when they're with their primary, but will be submissive to another partner. But, you know, that's exactly. completely separate from the the primary relationship because of how those power dynamics would potentially switch or play or so I could, that totally makes sense. And even beyond the, the kink setting, some people, for instance, um, one woman was telling me that she never knew that she enjoyed opera <laughs> until she met this partner who enjoyed opera, had in fact been kind of an aspiring opera singer and I didn't realize at the time I guess there's a lot of people who want to sing opera but are not I didn't realize there was so much competition for opera singing jobs yeah so he 
was not actually an opera singer anymore, but he still enjoyed listening. And she would go with him and he would tell her because it's in Italian or whatever. So he would tell her what was going on. And she found that she really enjoyed it. And her primary partner under no circumstances would have ever gone (laughs) to the opera. He's definitely more of like a let's go camping. Let's go, you know, like outside and play with dogs, you know. Sure. Uh, Yeah. And so having it be something where it's just by having more of that variety of partner i mean that again makes sense that you're then going to be exposed to so much that would be brand new to you that you otherwise wouldn't potentially uh know about because you do have the opportunity to spend that time with those different partners and people are used to that when they're dating trying new things with Mm -hmm. their dates but often once they're partnered with a serious partner that kind of stops Mm -hmm. You know, like you do what you're doing and you're, you know, if neither one of you is an opera aficionado, how do you make the leap into opera? And often it takes meeting someone who knows about it and can make it comprehensible instead of a string of unintelligible words. That was what made a big difference for her was he was so excited about it and she could follow it because he was interpreting for her. And that kind of, let me show you this whole other realm of life. Let me be your guide into this other area. You know, as an adult, as when you're 50, when you're 60, when you're 70 years old, to be meeting new partners who take you new places and in yourself even, um, the long-term polyamorous, the people who've been in these relationships for 50, 60 years, they say how valuable that is to them, this feeling of kind of newness and aliveness that they then bring back to their primary partners if they have primaries. Sure. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously there's uh, kind of another side that we can also talk about that is solo poly, which is uh, kind of a, a unique subset. And we have a couple of friends who are solo poly interesting concept in general if you uh, can make yeah. an overview on that so that uh, our audience can understand so solo polyamory is a form of multiple partner relationship in which the um, person doesn't necessarily want a primary partner that they don't want those kinds of expectations that come with organizing their lives around romantic relationships not that they don't want attention and affection and love and sex and companionship but they don't necessarily want the level of expectation that comes with being a primary partner so for them maintaining secondary and tertiary relationships is actually incredibly fulfilling it's just what they want to be able to get that sex and attention and love and affection and then go somewhere to else to where they're house for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Right. I've heard right. it described a lot as like, I don't need another person as a primary because I am my own primary. And then the rest of what I run is how I live my life in terms of connections with people going out, whether it's sexual or it's the emotional connection. It's, it's still serving. My relationship is with myself first. And I think that's important for people in general. I think that there's a different emphasis on that, maybe for somebody who's um, involved in solo poly. Right. Or for some of them, their relationship is with 
something else that it's not a romantic relationship that they're so for instance I know um, one of my respondents is a woman who identifies as solo poly and when her kid was small she was like it's me and my kid my kid is the most important person to me and if I have sex with somebody whatever that's fine but nobody I don't have room in my life for anyone else to be as important to me as my child Sure. And maybe that'll change once my kid grows up. I mean, I think at the time of that interview, he was like seven, maybe. For her, at least, it was perhaps a time-limited thing. She wasn't necessarily certain that she would never primary partner again, but certainly not while she felt like somebody might need want to ask her, like, hey, I need more time from you kind of choose between me and your kid. She was like, if you make me choose between you and my kid, then I choose my kid straight up. Smart. Right. So it's basically, you can have the time that I'm giving you or you can have no time. Right. 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 Which also does not mean that she's then parading a whole litany of partners through her house and exposing her child to all of these things. (laughs) Sometimes I think people get that idea also that if parents are polyamorous and their kids are exposed to like wild, crazy sex on the kitchen table and they never know when they bring their friends home what's going to be happening. I mean, can you Which is not at that? all what I see in my data, For sure. actually. Awesome. In the reality of poly family life, poly parents, I think, are much more likely to date like divorced parents who get somebody else to hang out with the kid and then go meet partners outside of the house. Or at least smart divorced parents right. don't have their dates come to the house until they know that person. Right. And actually, that uh, was another question I wanted to ask, too. So based on your research, what uh, percentage of uh, what do you what do you see as the divorce rate within polyamorous couples in terms of if their uh, primaries are married? You know, I wish I had a better answer for that. My the kind of research I do is called ethnography mm-hmm. and we don't do percentages. We don't. Oh, that's right. <laughs> speak in that kind of. <laughs> language. I actually remember you when uh, there was somebody who asked a question of you uh, during your lecture and I think again was asking for a percentage of something and you're like so I don't have that and uh, because that is not the type of work that I do but the way that you did it was like just really skillful but uh, but also just very matter of fact and be like that's not what I do. Right. I can only talk about what I know about and it was Well, and I can tell you about breaking up, actually, that the larger the relationship, meaning the more people in it, the more likely it is to have had turnover by the time I check in with them again. So I interview my respondents about every five years. And if they're a triad for instance, and they've been together for 10 years already, the chances that they'll still be together when I check in five years later are pretty darn high. Versus if they are a moresome, which is five or more people, Mm -hmm. and I check in with them again five years later, the chances that at least one person has left and someone else has come in are very high. So the bigger the relationship, the more turnover in my data. That's what it looks like. Oh, sure. The bigger the relationship, and the, the bigger more the needs. relationship, the less common. Like huge five, six person relationships are not nearly as common as 
an open couple or a solo poly or even a triad. All three of those are far more common than quads or morsums. Another question I had there, uh, too, was around of the research that you've done, what's the proliferation of uh, sexuality by our parents? Yeah, I would say that that's generational in my data, that the parents' generation, who are mostly the end of the baby boom and Generation X, okay. those are the parent ages, okay. that those folks, almost all of the men are heterosexual, and almost all of the women are bisexual, and most of them, almost all of them, are cisgendered. In terms of the kids, they are either pansexual, which is like 90% of them, or asexual. So only one of them told me she was asexual. The rest of them say that they're pansexual, even if their primary experience to date has been heterosexual, because they don't want to say, oh, I'll never do anything else. You know, they don't want to commit to something without they like the wiggle room of pansexuality sure. i guess Which, I mean, I and think that that there's a well. much more gender fluidity among that yeah. generation as well much more likely to be gender neutral or non-binary yeah. or actively trans yeah which i think probably mirrors just demographically and generationally what's happening the generations the yeah. totally right agreed which is awesome i get that I understand that moment of like, I can't say that I'm one thing or another thing necessarily because I haven't had that experience or because, I mean, for me, my pansexuality comes down to, I discriminate on a lot of different categories. Gender is just not one of them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that, I mean, I, uh, so I also identify as uh, pansexual and it's, I'm still very on the fence about a lot of different things, but because I'm just not totally sure it seems reasonable that i'm open to possible experiences yeah that is just being open to possible types of play is definitely something that is really freeing uh and just knowing that there there isn't any discrimination around different types of uh interactions with uh, larger parts of the communities that we're in and a lot of freedom and acceptance in fact of exploration yeah Which is a healthy human trait, especially if once you explore something and you decide you don't like it, you don't get any guff for stopping it. Right. Yeah. And or continuing it if you do like it. Don't yuck my yum. Right. And so I think that that's something that in the larger uh, poly and BDSM communities tend to be much more open about all of that, where it's like, if that is something that you enjoy, enjoy it. And don't judge others for what they enjoy. Right. Absolutely. Which is often easier said than done, I think, even among kinksters. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, there <laughs> that general rule of like, if you see something that you're not wanting to watch, then walk away from it. It can be really hard to, to separate oneself from an emotional reaction to something that they're having a hard time totally. viewing. So, yeah. I mean, I think as an overriding principle, don't yuck my yum is really important, and I think it's a foundational element. I also think that it is reasonable to expect one to have to manage their own emotional reaction in that process. It's not just a simple black-white, I'm here and it's all great. 
Right. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about consent and how that works in the conversations between polyamorous parents and their kids. I know that you had mentioned during the um, lecture that part of this is making sure that we're following the kids' lead in terms of what's being discussed or not, um, in terms of what they're ready, like what kind of material and information they're ready to to take on. But I think that that comes down to a question of consent also and how you talk to kids. Yes, and especially a question of age in polyamorous families in terms of, you know, older kids can just understand a lot more and are able to kind of actively engage in a discussion around consent because of their kind of greater intellectual capacity. Whereas little kids like a three-year-old, it's really hard to have a discussion about consent with a three-year-old. I mean, the very, the most basic level of use your words, don't hit. Right. That's or basically where three-year-olds are. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. if everyone's or a mom or a daddy. Sure. Right. <laughs> so um, the older children are, the more sophisticated their ability to have conversations and think through things. So I find it difficult to make a blanket statement about kids and consent because it just matters so much how old they are. Of course. Makes good sense. Yeah, and they're... <laughs> that part of the brain has to go fully online before they can grasp concepts that <laughs> can be as complicated as consent. Right. You had mentioned earlier. Some, go ahead. Sometimes doesn't happen till you're 25. Sure. Brains are still developing far longer than we had originally realized. I like to joke that your frontal cortex is not fully developed until you're off your parents' health insurance. <laughs> so we just keep pushing it back. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. <laughs> some people may have questions about is are there any uh, legal uh, ramifications around polyamory or uh, ah, that's a good that? question yes both in fact and they're somewhat different okay um polyamory one of i'm an expert witness in cases related to polyamory and bdsm <laughs> and the cases related to polyamory tend to be around two things, either um, custody of children mm -hmm. or employment discrimination. Hmm. So we'll start with the employment discrimination because that's the smaller and the easier one. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when people are publicly polyamorous, um, they have been denied business licenses. This one guy I was working with was denied a cab driver's license because he was polyamorous and they were concerned that he would be raping the female clients in his cab. And he's like, polyamory has nothing to do with rape. They're yeah. different things completely. Yeah. But there's this kind of equation in the popular imagination that if you are unconventionally, if you have an unconventional sex life, then, then you have no boundaries. Yes, exactly. Like you'll, you'll fuck a cactus, you know, something <laughs> like that, <laughs> which I got to say, I've never heard anybody who does that. Maybe yeah. there is a kink around cactus fucking. It wouldn't surprise me, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, I mean, it's rule, rule 34. If you can think of it, somebody has it as a kink for sure. Right. Yes. <laughs> so um, people have, 
lost their jobs when they've come out as polyamorous or been unable to establish businesses. Um, I haven't myself worked on any housing cases, but I know that that can also be an issue, housing discrimination against polyamorous people. Yeah, I, um, I guess what just, I have... just that as an overall, and uh, just discrimination is something that I think is, I mean, I know that we don't think about all that much given, I mean, we're in Austin, which is the keep it weird capital of the world. And like we have right. run in so many different communities that we are able to just be very open and honest about kind of how we live our life. But for people who uh, maybe don't have that as an, as an option, you know, if they're in small town USA and like, it is something where it's just like, yes, we are this, yes, we go to this club and we like, this is how we met other people who you know, are swingers or are, you know, polyamorous. And then it's like, but now everybody shut the fuck up when we go home because like, we can't let people know that this is how we live our lives. <laughs> Which is actually a serious concern, yeah. a significant and realistic concern that bad things might happen to you if you come out as kinky or polyamorous or a swinger. Yeah. Um, certainly. For one of the things that might happen is your ex-spouse or your mother-in-law might try to sue for custody of your kids. And that's the oh, wow. the two largest categories I see oh, trying to get custody. Where basically it is that where the, um, the ex is, finds out that the, that, you know, let's say it's the wife finds out that the ex-husband is now Polly and has uh, multiple partners then they use that as potential leverage saying it's like, this is a terrible place for a child. So exactly. You know, like we and the child that. is in danger. So we can't yeah. let the child go over there, yeah. which is not true. Wow. At least in my research, I'm not finding that polyamory is dangerous to children. What I'm finding is in these families, polyamory can be incredibly advantageous, especially because the parents are not having sex with or in front of their children. They yeah. are maintaining appropriate parental boundaries around sexuality to the point that the kids often are not aware, especially if they're small, of the sexual nature of the relationship. And they, it doesn't really dawn on them until they're tweens often. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute, you guys are having sex? Oh, now it makes sense. But, it, you know, the kids aren't obsessed with it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to know. And it's also, I mean, it, I think just broadly people have such a, a misconception around what poly is that they do think that it's basic. Or not, I shouldn't say they, and I mean, this is obviously just speaking very broadly. Often people are like, if somebody is poly, then that means that, you know, basically their house is like an orgy house. And like, right. Uh, and it's like... Actually, no. I can imagine children seeing lots of just strong relationships, but not seeing sex. Exactly. Which is like, right. I mean, and not, but that's no, I mean, I think that's crazy that people are just like, oh my God, no, they're going to be seeing such like weird shit if, you know, your parents were polyamorous. It's like, it's really no different than if your parents are monogamous and you walk in on them having sex. It's just as scarring. Right. Or just is not a big deal. Right. I or mean, we were like all that. freaked out about that in this culture, but for hundreds of thousands of years, well, I'm not sure about hundreds, certainly thousands <laughs> of years, humans have had kind of one place at night where the whole family shares 
a bedroom or domicile or hut or yurt mm-hmm. or whatever teepee yeah. and you know the kids are asleep and the parents have sex sure. and it's part of life right in the same way that you know and nudity doesn't have to be shameful it also uh right being like thrown in children's faces you know right i mean so yeah that children are going to get exposed to anything more than they would if uh your parents were monogamous I think the the kind of obsession with the freaky sex of it all often says more about the person who keeps bringing it up and is so obsessed with it <laughs> than it does about the polyamorous family. Because many of the polyamorous families I talk to, the things they spend time together doing are incredibly mundane. Making dinner, doing homework, folding laundry. Yeah you know, vacuuming. It's not like their lives are so much like everyone else's that to continually circle back to, yes, but the freaky sex. No, no, no. Screw that vacuuming. Let's talk about the freaky sex. And it's like, yeah, I mean, yes, that does happen, but it's not like that is not the be all end all. And again, it's, yeah, it's not something that is. It's the (laughs) condiment of family life. Right. Not the, it's the sriracha that the kids don't <laughs> like and they don't want to have anything to do with. Yeah. That's a little bit of the, the legal stuff around uh, polyamory. What about around BDSM or kink? That actually, I've been doing a lot more expert witnessing there. And I see three main categories, in fact, where um bdsm is criminally prosecuted that's generally like the polyamory cases i'm usually in family court mm-hmm. and the um bdsm cases i'm always in criminal court mm-hmm. so the the three things that tend to get prosecuted are one trying to distinguish consent was sure. consent occurring or not so yeah. was this kidnapping rape and assault or was it kinky sex gone wrong? Yeah, or was it, or was or it CNC? Uh. <laughs> consensual non-consent. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, or sometimes it actually was consensual at first, and then it gets out of hand. Or one of the partners is mad at the other one and decides to use it against them. Yeah. Another issue I've I've testified on quite a bit is age play online when sometimes and it's always been men, um, men thinking that they are age playing with, you know, like a 42 year old woman who's pretending to be 13 when really who they're age playing with is a cop. Pretending to be a 13-year-old, pretending to be a 42-year-old, and distinguishing between what generally I do in court at that point is help to distinguish between pedophilia, which is the desire for sex with children, or hebophilia, which is the desire for sex with adolescents, or epihebophilia, which is the desire for sex with post-pubescent adolescence um, and age play, which is very different from actually having sex with a kid, having sex with an adult who's pretending to be younger. And sometimes juries have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. 
I can and imagine. I, <laughs> I mean, if that's explain and that, explain, and often they understand. Then yeah, but I mean, that I can I can imagine <clears> that <throat> is something that for people who uh, have not been exposed to any of it, you know, it's like uh, jumping directly to it's like no, then that's you know uh, pedophilia, or it's you know something that is that could be illegal, inappropriate, so, yes, harmful. Right? Yeah, it could be something that it's like yeah, you're doing this, but you really want to be doing something else. So it's I mean, right. I mean, and in fact, there's a huge difference between what you would get from an actual 13 year old versus an adult pretending to be 13 has a level of sophistication. And that's what the age players are looking for. Right. It's, if I mean, they're doing play and yeah, it's, there's a right. Lot, there's a lot more that's to it. It's not literally act that age. I'm, right. Some, right. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's really and so then the third category that I tend to witness on is death by kinky sex. <laughs> so did this person freak out and strangle their partner or did they do breath play in a fucked up way right. that has now had incredibly fucked up consequences? Right. And if, again, if the jury's never heard of breath play, then how could you know they often they can't conceive of how it would be anything but murder to strangle someone right and And in fact lots of people do breath play safely but if somebody screws up there is no room for error so it's kind of my personal vendetta in a way to encourage people instead of compressing the neck which is where if you accidentally collapse a blood vessel or a, a artery even when you release that doesn't necessarily mean there's blood flow to the brain so a much safer way to do it instead of neck constriction or compression is to pinch the nose and put the hand over the mouth you can do them both at the same time and then release because it doesn't impact the neck you can still cut off the oxygen flow, but then you're looking at the person and you're in, you know, you're as soon as you release, they can have oxygen. It's a much more controlled way. So yeah, there's that's that, I, I can imagine there being dangerous. a lot less room for error when you're, when doing it that way, because yeah. uh, again, breath play is something that, I mean, people who are listening may not have heard before. Uh, could you just give a quick over? I mean, I know we've kind of covered it, but um, can you talk about breath play? Yeah, I think, and one of the things I tell juries is that it's a sensation thing that lots of people enjoy, and it's not always just sexual. In fact, there was this whole CDC report of children doing what they called the choking game, because cutting off oxygen to the brain can produce a euphoric effect but in combination with orgasm that really knocks people socks off (laughs) having that euphoric effect with orgasm sure i mean i can remember Um, that when i I was uh like when we were kids and you'd basically you'd hyperventilate and then have somebody compress on your chest and basically take all the air out of you and you would you'd pass out and but like the feeling that it would give you for like that instant was something like unlike anything else so Oh, I was going to say something and I lost it. Breath play. Oh, most, most of the things we know about death by breath play actually 
come from what they call autoerotic asphyxiation, sure. where someone is masturbating, again, almost always a man, mm-hmm. um, masturbating often with like a belt or something tied around their throat that they can lean against yeah. to cut off their their airflow, and they pass out and remain leaning against it and accidentally kill themselves. And that's happened to a number of famous people. In fact, that's how we know about it. But juries, while they can understand that in a way, like, Oh, you accidentally kill yourself. (laughs) It can be very difficult for them to believe that someone who chokes their partner is trying to do anything but kill them or that the partner would have consented to it and enjoyed it. Right. Any number of different types of, you know, edgier play in kink and BDSM that most people would just see as a straight up violent act or exactly. You know, just exactly. And, and wouldn't be seen as anything like, I mean, whether it's, you know, um, like uh, scarification or cell popping branding, uh, branding, exactly. Uh, and, uh, cell popping is basically heating a needle and tapping on the skin to produce artistically or for pain play. And then obviously and scarification is what that is and cutting certain and like needle play and all of those different things instantly think all of those were violent acts and would not think of right. them as just like, wait a second, this person likes having needles put in their back in, in a design and that like, why would you do that? And it's like, how could someone consent to that? Right. How could, yeah. Why would somebody yeah. say, okay, do this to me? Like, <laughs> right. I, I, yeah. So, and I think that's another part of it too, is that, I mean, the, the world of kink is just so broad. There are tons of things that we've never seen before or thought of, or, you know, um, that exist out there. So I can only, and yet, I mean, and, and we're certainly people that we would consider ourselves very open-minded, uh, but for people who have not been exposed to any of it, I can only imagine what it's like if the first time that they're hearing about it is in a court case. <laughs> right. And most juries, I think, are kind of randomly selected. And even if those folks have included, for instance, spanking in sex is so incredibly common that a lot of people don't even identify it necessarily as kink. I mean, if they're really into it, there's a whole category of people who do and they call themselves spankos. Yeah, but even beyond the spankos, I would say that perhaps the majority of people have tried spanking at least once. Sure. But they don't necessarily think of that as kinky sex or compare it to, oh, if I can enjoy spanking my partner or being spanked during sex or as, you know, a warm up to sex, then these other people could enjoy something, a more extreme sensation. Right. I think a lot of people don't make that connection in their minds. I guess right. is what they, I'm they don't, saying. Yeah, I mean, the for those people that see, like, maybe they do spanking, but they don't think of it as a, a BDSM act. Ultimately, it's still the same type of kind of sensation, pain, play. Whether you're, you know, using your hand or an implement, it's just a matter of <laughs> the level at which uh, people are playing at, and right. and what's been negotiated. But yeah. I mean, I've had a number of those conversations with people when I tell them that, you know, I'm into impact and they're just like, what is that? And then I'll explain it and they'll be like, why would anyone have that done to them? 
And I was just like, so, I mean, you'd have to ask them as to exactly why they do it. It is just, it's, I mean, it's a type of play that just some people don't get it. <laughs> like even an understanding, Absolutely. Not, not even in like a projected way where they're just like, okay, that's not my thing, but I could imagine why somebody would like it. There are some people who just cannot wrap their brain around why that would ever happen. Definitely. Definitely. Or the connection between pain and sex at all sure. makes no sense to people. And generally in those cases, I explain the brain how the pain centers and the pleasure centers in the brain often are so closely related that they can even share some of the same neurons. They travel so closely together that riding that edge of pain becomes pleasure for a lot of people. It's a brain thing. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. But that, and, but again, I mean, uh, it is certainly not for everyone, but it is interesting that uh, even from a just theoretical level uh, or conceptual level, some people can't get there, even if they know it's something they wouldn't like. They like to get them over the hump of like, but I could imagine why someone would. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, are there any other things that you can think about in terms of uh, legality around anything that you've experienced? Um, I would say those are the primary ones. Okay. Um, although I imagine that we will be hearing more about housing discrimination as oh, elderly sure, polyamorous people try yeah. to find assisted living <laughs> yeah. or aging communities. There's um, a, a person who gave me his permission to, to use his name and speak out loud about him named Ken Haslam. And he has been, <laughs> yeah, he's a long-term polyamorous activist. He has an archive at the Kinsey library, the yeah. Ken Haslam polyamory connection. So he's collection. So he's really well known. And when he tried to get senior housing, he ran into a lot of discrimination. I'm sure. And cause... he has a lot of money, so he was able to deal with it. But <laughs> Not other aging, exactly. And I think that um, because the polyamorous community as a whole or all sex and gender minorities kind of ride on the coattails of gay liberation, the gay folks have already experienced that and are already dealing with it and coming up with, you know, gay retirement homes and things where people won't be shamed and harassed. It's something that is going to, or is happening, I'm sure already where, you know, you have yes. people who having a unique lifestyle as you get older. Yeah. Then it becomes that where it's like, is this going to be an issue if they, you know, cause if they find out, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that people have to have that fear in them around like, well, are these people open-minded enough to know that this is not what is broadly thought of this type of a lifestyle and that yeah. we're just, we're just normal people that uh, have the ability and uh, desire to uh, love multiple people. It's not that crazy of a concept. <laughs> and in fact, having that broader social network of support mm -hmm. is fantastic for older people who often have experiences of isolation. Yeah. Or just being and, sedentary and yeah. You know, so, 
yeah, I mean, I would, I can't imagine. Or after one of their partners dies, mm -hmm. to have still other partners around can make a huge difference in their well-being. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all of that seems perfectly reasonable in terms of being able to age and have more people around you so that you don't end up with that where, yeah, where, you know, whether you're isolated or, um, you know, just simply not not living uh, uh, as active and fulfilling a life as you can. Right, yeah. So, in fact, polyamory can be great for kids, great for adults, and fantastic for older, aging folks, elderly <laughs> folks, too. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> which is fun. I mean, I, and not that it's always perfect. It can totally suck as well. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like it's every poly family is perfect. Sure. Well, Some I, of them are a hot mess. For, that's why it cracks me up too when, you know, people who are either not even necessarily that they are, they would be anti alternative lifestyles, but they are definitely not for them. Monogamous couples have just as many problems as uh, polyamorous couples do. Oh, yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter. Relationships are really hard and they're going to be a lot of work. It doesn't, I mean, so whether you're doing it with one person or a bunch of them, it's still a lot of communication and a lot of hard work. And if people put effort into gaining those skills sure. to learn how to communicate, then it can actually make them less hard work. <laughs> and polyamorous families are tend to be really good at that, prioritizing relationship skills and communication and then putting the effort into learning how to do it wisely and appropriately and effectively and compassionately. I think everyone can learn those skills, but polyamorous families put the time and effort into actually doing it. Eli, we are uh, about wrapped up here, but uh, before we go, do you have anything that is uh, that you have coming out soon in terms of, I know you've written several books. Uh, I... Yeah, right now I'm working on um, a couple of articles, one about uh, kinky sex gone wrong, mm -hmm. and then another one about polyamory, polyamorous families perhaps are having the capacity to be in the best interests of children, which is a custody issue, how they decide custody. Um, I'm also working on analyzing the data around the kids to write Growing Up Polly, which will be my kid, my, my book about kids. Mm -hmm. And then Persistent Polyamorists will be my book about the elders. Um, and I'm also starting to provide consultations for counselors and therapists who are trying to serve polyamorous clients, but mm -hmm. are um, facing some kind of challenge or difficulty. A lot of counselors and therapists don't get much, if any, training, training on, on yeah. how to serve polyamorous clients. So even with their best interests at heart, sometimes counselors or therapists are just like, I do not know what to do in this situation. <laughs> so having someone they can ask questions has proven really valuable yeah, I mean, for I, some I, folks that I've consulted with so I, far. I, I, oh, well, hey, yes, this spring, I'm actually going to be back in Austin awesome. with my amazing sister, Elaine Schiff, who is a clinical herbalist, and she specializes in reproductive health. So she's going to talk about birth and, and 
like childbirth, pregnancy, things like that in polyamorous families and how to use herbs. So we'll be in Austin together in April as the Chef Sisters dynamic <laughs> duo with the Sexual Health Alliance. That's great. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, Eli, uh, for everyone who's listening, you can get all that information on uh, Eli's website, which is elizabethchef.com, and that's Elizabeth with an S. Uh, and Eli, I just want to thank you so much. This has been uh, a really fun conversation and super informative and an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. For additional show information, including related articles, links, and social media, check out consentences.com.